And if we look at and we understand his character and who he is, then the things that he says that seem puzzling at first start to make more sense if we approach them through the character and the principles perspective, because those things don't change. Hello, this is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. Joining me today are your friends and mine, Eric. Hey there. And Karen. Hello. Tracy will not be with us this week, but we have every confidence that he will be back again soon. While we are waiting for him to come back, though, you know, we're uh, we've just been sitting here talking about our lives and, and all the weird, the, the weirdness of the world and the weird business practices and Karen getting ready to close on a house. And, oh, it's, uh, I don't know, it's just an interesting, it's an interesting Interesting world we're in right now. There's uh, really no better way to put it. <laughs> that uh, it's just that things are things are weird and things are some things are exciting and some things are scary and I don't know. We're just uh, everything's constantly changing, I guess, huh? And uh, what was the normal? Yeah, and then what was the the meme you shared the other day, Karen, about uh, not knowing? The only thing I know is that I what I don't know or something like that. Right, right. Stuff I so it's okay. So it's a picture of the entire globe, and there's a little slice that's marked things that I know, and then there's, an then there's another slice that's things that I know or things that I know that I don't know, and then and both of those two things together maybe make up ten percent of the globe, and then the entire rest of the globe is marked things that I don't know that I don't know. It's like yeah. yes, like that. <laughs> Correct. Correct. I think I, I think I commented. I don't even know if I know that much. <laughs> <laughs> and that's uh, that's the world we live in, folks. We don't know. But uh, hey, you know what? Some of the stuff that we don't know, we have an opportunity to learn about. And that's why we are here today. How's that for a segue? We are we uh, a lot of things about uh, the universe that we don't know. But uh, God has given us his word to uh, study and read and and uh, help us to at least get a glimpse, you know, so maybe we get a little piece of that pie wedge <laughs> uh, of understanding. So um, we have been studying the last, oh gosh, for a while, we've been studying Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. And this week we are going to be looking at the chapters uh, 49 through 53. And so for the context, we'll, we'll just back up briefly here. And, you know, Isaiah has been a lot of warning that things are coming down the stream that uh, people are not going to like. Israel, the, the northern nation of Israel um, is getting carried away by Assyria. We know that the southern nation of Judah is going to get carried away by Babylon. Israel is going to essentially disappear. Judah will sort of uh, keep on for a while. But through the things we've been reading in Isaiah specifically, but also we, we read some in Hosea, we've read some in Amos, in Micah. There's just been lots of God saying, turn around and come back to me. Turn around, turn around, turn around, come back. And uh, apparently there's been a whole lot of not listening to that. And uh, because God keeps having to say it. And I've really been fascinated by just how much time God has spent with these people saying, come back to me, turn around and come back to me. And um, 
what's really fascinating about that to me is that people want to look at the Old Testament as the angry God who wanted to punish. And God is constantly saying, I don't want that to happen. That's not what I want to happen. I want you to come back and I'm going to do what it takes. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get you to come back to me. And so that's where we, that's kind of the context of where we're we're coming into now with all of this, this talk from God to come back, come back, come back. And so when we get into Isaiah chapter 49, now, interestingly, uh, we get this talk of a servant. Um, the title, the first title of chapter 49 in my Bible is the servant, the light to the Gentiles. The whole chapter, did you guys see it this way? It it almost sounded like a chapter of God having a conversation with himself with little interjections from Isaiah. Is that, did you see it that way? Yeah, I think the most of the reading um, up through 52, it's just almost paragraph by paragraph flashes back and forth between uh, a monologue of God just saying things. Once in a while, Isaiah sounds like he interjects himself in frustration with the people. And and then there's just prophecies of the future, just flashing forward to things of the future. Yes, it's very much a, a mix of all those things. And it's you've, we've talked about before on the podcast about how prophecy like this can apply to one specific group of people at one specific time, to that people in the future to it being just a revelation of God's character to people far in the future to, and this, this section is just more of that. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's a, it's popping in and out and we can say, wow, that could see this apply to here or to here or to here. And I think a lot of those things are valid. And for us where we are right now is it's looking to say, well, how, how predictive was this of God in his day because as we talked about last week a little bit, God says once in a while, look, I'm telling you this ahead of time <clears throat> so that you know I'm the one who understands how things unfold in the future. So that you don't think your gods did it or you don't think that you understood, like I understand what's happening in the future, even though you don't. There's more of those glimpses as well. And I can't help but think of the book of Job where everybody kind of comes up with their own theories as to why things are happening. And God shows up and says, you're all wrong. (laughs) (laughs) You all all missed. And I think there's some of that here. And as we, as we get into some of the specifics, there's some really neat, really neat things. Some things in here that the Jews, some understood and some missed. And I think it's very valid for us to be listening because again, there are so many things that are quoted in the Gospels from from the reading we're going to do this week, uh, as well as by John the Revelator in Revelation. Yeah, so this all kind of seems like it, it's like setting up who we're talking about here. And I think maybe we get insight because we're looking at it um, in hindsight. Yes. Uh, I, I, I would suspect maybe the people at the time reading this wouldn't quite understand maybe isaiah would i don't know i don't know how much people would understand this because i do know that even sometimes modern day jews don't look at some of these texts and see them the way we do which obviously we're looking back as christians and going this is talking about jesus this is talking about the ministry of christ and as we read it with with our perspective from the gospels it seems unmistakable to us 
So I don't know. I don't know how much the people at the time would have understand it. I can say from reading this that if they were understanding this as being messianic, that when it came time for Jesus to come, that they should have understood that what they were wanting out of Messiah was not what was being had been promised to them. And we'll get to some of that as we go. Uh, now, the, we, there's talk here about um, the Lord has called me from the womb. And this had me think, I was wondering if this is, you know, kind of a concept, you know, an allusion to Jesus's birth to Mary. That's verse one. The Lord has called me from the womb. And talking about this servant, and it's it's interesting to me, too, that the translators always capitalize the word servant. They obviously understand, understood that there was something more going on here. And it's talk about him having a mouth like a sharp sword. Well, that had me thinking of of imagery from uh, Revelation, where in there it's more like he from his mouth comes a sharp sword. But again, we're, you know, we're talking, looking back in hindsight and just things that just trigger, they just trigger little connections in my brain. And I suspect most people uh, looking at it that way uh, might see the same thing. Yeah, I think this is, this is a good place to, to be reminded that when Jesus showed up, after his resurrection, it's it's puzzling because I think most of the world today, <clears throat> the way we would roll, it'd be like here we would do a huge reveal, like ta-da! Here's everybody gets to see, and it's irrefutable, and you have no choice but to believe and see that that's just not what happened after the resurrection. And as Jesus revealed himself on the road to Emmaus, it's very interesting how it starts. You know, beginning with the prophets, he unfolded what must happen you know, to the Messiah. He, he didn't do like, look, it's me. Here's a miracle to prove it. He went back to prophecy, which is our ability to, we can look at that and we can say, hey, here, this is cool. And I think that, you know, to your point, Matt, is like, when does this apply? How does this go? Is this to the Messiah? Is this to other things? I think there's enough leeway here that we can look at it a number of different ways, but all of it, regardless of how we, see a specific phrase speaks to the character of God. Like mm-hmm. to your point right here in chapter one, 49, one, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he called my name. Well, if that applies to the Messiah, that means he knew the Messiah before. If it applies to Isaiah, it's like he knew Isaiah. We read last week, um, God called Cyrus by name before he was born. And the, the idea that God knows who we are and our future is reassuring regardless of where we put that specific prophecy. So there's that principle we can take from the text, even if we don't know exactly where that applies. Mm-hmm. Now, verse six stood out to me here. It says, it's too small for you, or maybe this is my, uh, my, my interpretation, but it's too small for you to just serve me by restoring Israel, because obviously this is a big, topic right now of wanting Israel restored. But it's too small for you to just restore Israel. It says, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles, yes. and my salvation yes. will go to the end of the earth. Yes. Um, th- this this is pretty mind-blowing probably to the people hearing this. Of you know, These are people who thought rightly so that they had been singled out uh, for a special purpose. Uh, but to maybe to the point where they thought, well, we're the only ones who are ever going to who going to uh, be treated by God this way. And 
and here saying no we're going to we're going to take this everywhere this is going to go to all the people this is going to go to the gentiles not just to the hebrew people yeah and this and, this shows up in in acts as cornelius calls well cornelius is praying um the roman and an angel visits him and says send for peter and peter has this vision of the sheet coming down from heaven remember that god's mm-hmm. he's hungry he's praying on the roof, and the sheet comes down, God says, kill and eat. Um, and a lot of people have said, oh, see, this does talk about clean and unclean meat. It has nothing to do with clean and unclean meat. Okay, the text itself just says, and God told me not to judge people, not mm-hmm. to consider people unclean. And But this was a big deal to Peter, because he had thought Romans were like, yeah, you can't hang out with them, and certainly, I mean, God's only going to save the Jews. And he has this vision three times. He's like, I wonder what this means. And then these people show up at the gate right at that moment and says, hey, God showed up to us and said that you're supposed to come preach the gospel to us. And Peter's thinking, that's weird. I guess God's talking about these people being acceptable to him. And he goes and he, he, he ministers to them. And then an interesting turn, the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and his family before they're baptized. And on all the Jews, it goes like this. They're ba- they believe, then they're baptized. Then they get the Holy Spirit. Peter shows up, and these Gentiles get the Holy Spirit first. And he and the other Jews that are with him, Christians, are like, whoa, I guess, well, God's ahead of us, so we might as well try to catch up and baptize him. Then all the Jews in Jerusalem are like, what were you doing? And Peter has to describe to them, he's like, well, I guess God's going to save the Gentiles too. And this verse right here um, is is mentioned and and the or alluded to, and the Jews are like, wow, I guess the Gentiles are included in salvation also. And this was like you say, Matt, I mean, a mind blowing thing for them. Yeah. And uh, there was the whole chapter just gives interesting uh, perspective on, I think, who's being talked about and what is going to happen. I mean, there's talk about uh, let's see, verse eight, I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people. You know, every time we've talked about covenant between God and man, uh, there's always been this emphasis of I will be your God and you will be my people. I mean, that's the kind of the heart of the covenants. Right. And now he said this servant, this servant is going to be the covenant. And so all this it's like all this stuff is going to be applied to this to this servant, which, like I said, we're we're looking back on this and with an understanding that we're talking about that we're talking about Christ. Um, the entire book of Hebrews is kind of like an expansion of that one verse. Yeah. And there's talk here about, uh, I, the Lord, I am your savior, your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. All right. So, uh, chapter 50. Oh, can, let's, let's just at least mention. Okay. Uh, verse 15 and 16. Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. Verse 15. Um, um, Maybe I should maybe I should read it here. It talks about how a mother might forget her nursing child. Um, was that ever an issue for you, Karen? I've never been a nursing nursing mother, so. No, but there was one time uh, when we were. I was in fifth grade. We were over at some friend's house. They had a very large house, so there was plenty of room for the kids to go over here and hang out in a room by themselves, and for the adults to have adult time and whatever. And there was one little toddler that was in the kid room with us. And we're just doing our thing, having a good time, no big deal. 
And then all of a sudden the door opens and these frantic parents come rushing in and they were like, oh my gosh, we left and got halfway home before we realized we didn't oh, no. have the baby. And I oh, was no. like, how on earth? Here you go. Here's the baby. Oh my. <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I could think of one time when my oldest was like new and I remember standing at the pharmacy and I had him in his little car carrier next to me. And I was waiting in line, and for the briefest of moments, I stopped. I kind of forgot that he was right. I, I immediately, it was like five seconds, I immediately remembered he was there. But it freaked me out because for a second there, I thought, I totally forgot that I had a kid for a second, you know? And it, it was just, uh, the, the, as a parent, you know, your kids are constantly in your mind. And so as a new parent, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe I, for, for two seconds, I wasn't thinking about my child. Uh, so, so when it's talked about here about how a mother might forget their nursing child, but God will never forget you, that, that is a perspective that, um, I mean, you can't, you can't hardly grasp as a parent forgetting that you had a kid, you know? Right. Right. And, and, and so the idea that says, uh, you know, a mother might forget, but I won't. I won't. Then, That's giving us this one. This one takes the whole game up and talks yes. about a nursing child. And I'm telling you, even if your mother's heart was just completely dead, your body would remind you like, mm. hey, attach the milk drain. You need to right now. Right. <laughs> so there's like this sort of double whammy written into this. It's like it's not going to happen beyond that. Then it goes to verse 16, which is. That's pretty powerful. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's a forever thing that um, that that uh, the Messiah did, and he uses this as a symbol as he's raised. You know, when Thomas is like, "I don't know if it's really you," Jesus is like, "Okay, look right here. This didn't go away on my resurrection. This is still here, and it's my understanding that those scars will always be there." Um, mm. He's saying, "I will never, I will never forget you," and and you know, in today's world, it is. It is pretty easy to be to think maybe God forgot about me. Maybe there's, you know, does he does he remember me? And these texts in Isaiah saying, you know, I, I knew your name before you were born. I have engraved you on the palm of my hands, which is uh, that's pretty unbelievable. Not unbelievable in the sense that I don't believe it. It's just amazing and incredible that he's standing before the before the father. His book is as in the book of Hebrews as our high priest with our names on his hands. Yeah, that is uh, it's fa it's fascinating. It's fascinating that I mean, we were talking about the God of the universe and yeah. that he would give himself that kind of a reminder. Of course, it's also something he can always always show and go, hey, look, look, I will never forget Because yeah. Look right here. It is. Look, you know, and uh that yeah, that is that is some some deep stuff. All right, well, Isaiah fifty turns just a bit, and it, and he starts starts out like, show me show me where I ever wronged you, show me where I where I did anything to you that put you where you are, and basically yeah, we 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 we've mentioned this kind of thing before. It's like your problems your problems were brought on you by yourself. Mankind brings their problems on by by not listening to God. And, um, you know, that's a that's a narrative that we deal with constantly today. Why does God let stuff happen? And, well, you know what? Your problems came on 
from your own sins. Uh, this isn't God making this stuff happen to you. Right. Uh, or, or it's the fact that we live in a sinful world. Yes. Right. Necessarily that person yeah. A did thing, thing mm. resulted in problem. It's that right. we yes. live in a sinful world and bad things as a result happen to everyone in that world, whether they have partaken in that particular wrong thing or not. And flip side of that is that if we think like, well, I never did such and such, I shouldn't have any repercussions from this. It's like, we have all done our thing. Maybe not the other thing, but we've done something and we are participators in this fallen world. Yeah. And and I would also say that the flip side of that is, you guys remember the the uh, story about the wheat and the tares in the New Testament. It's like, well, an enemy came in and sowed yes. weed in your field. You know, sh do you want us to go and tear it out? No, because if you do that, you might tear out some of the wheat as well with your efforts. So let them all grow together until the harvest, right? So there's yeah. that. Because it, if you think about what, what a field gets, it gets the weeds that grow amongst it the crop gets the weeds that grow amongst it and that's going to have fallout it gets the damage whenever somebody walks through it it also gets the sun and the rain and the wind and the storms it is an atmosphere like and our our earth is that field mm -hmm. and god is kind of saying here he's like where where was everybody when i came and called you know i i've i've been calling you i tried yeah. to get you to come back to me and you know, who was listening was anybody listening and then and he's like, don't I don't I have the power to to, to redeem you and deliver you? And well, of course, of course he does, you know. Yeah, um, back to the theme of all of this we've talked about is verses 10 and 11 here. Is this mm -hmm. this theme is it like there's God's way and then there's your way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you try to if you try to talk, walk in your own light, you will lie down in torment. Yeah, so if our listeners are not don't have Isaiah open, Isaiah 50, uh, 10, um, the last part of verse 10 says, Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Okay, that's what we're supposed to do. Then 11, behold all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches. Walk by the light of your fire and torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. Mm -hmm. And it seems it seems right that we should like do things ourselves. Like, oh, you know, we can light our own torches and walk by our own way. I don't think this is saying that we have no role in this sowing and reaping world. We do. But when it comes time to figuring our way through it, it's God is we should we should look to God to provide that light, not coming up with our own. Hey, I have an idea. We we uh, we came from amoebas. Hey, I've got an idea. We'll make up our own God and we'll make how we want to serve him. We'll we'll make up our own set of rules. And God says, no, I am. I'm providing you light on those things. Yeah. Interesting, too, you know, talking about the kindling of fire and whatnot and how that fire is what's going to bring you torment. And you think of the concept of hell and maybe I'm reading more into this than I should, but. Um, but that idea that the torment is, it's brought on by ourselves. It's, it's of our making. It's not of God's making. And so it, it's, it's saying again to me, it's saying 
God is saying, I am not the one doing this to you. You people have been doing it to yourselves. You've created an atmosphere that is unhealthy. And uh, it's not me. It's not me. Uh, Moving on into chapter 51, uh, verse 1. If you seek righteousness, look to God. If you want to... How does he put it? Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness. Uh, look to the rock from which you were hewn. Look to God. Uh, you know, God is God is that rock. In the talking about, you know, talking about uh, the context of comfort, he says, uh, "Law will proceed from me. Justice, light of the peoples." Um, if you if you're looking for comfort from God, you'll find it in His instructions. We can't we can't go out. You know that's Old Testament stuff. We don't have to deal with that anymore. The, you know what? The, you know we live in grace. We live in grace. Well, God, but God's grace is in His law. You know, and and um, you will find comfort in that specifically that moral that moral law. Uh, and uh, you can't. Uh, we can't just set that aside and think that that's that that's nothing. You know, I was thinking about that this week. That. If we you know, to be careful about this, but if we if we think about that law as his character, and I don't mean laws like you know um, uh, this this the ceremonial laws. Let's suppose going going back to uh, Leviticus, because there's lots of laws, you know, and what what how you carry the ark and stuff like that. I'm not talking about that, but God's teachings as his character and who mm-hmm. he is. And Jesus gets into this in the New Testament a lot. Like, so what's the biggest commandment? It's like love God, right. <laughs> love your fellow man, and from those come all these other things. He's not saying no other things exist. He's saying that those things come from those principles. And I think as we look through these verses, it's like, oh, okay. So God's character is to is to be this. And if we look at and we understand his character and who he is, then the things that he says that seem puzzling at first start to make more sense if we approach them through a character and principles perspective, because those things don't change. Mm-hmm. There's reminders of how God has worked in the past. Talks about cutting Rahab apart and he's wounded the serpent. Uh, Rahab, I believe, is an allusion to Egypt and the serpent. We've talked about that, how how these serpents, these sea serpents in particular, kind of back in the day were viewed as uh, uh, an image of chaos. And God has, he's taken, kind of taken care of those things. It, but basically what it's getting down to is you've seen God work in the past to deliver his people. And now you need to believe that he will deliver you too. And so as they're seeing, as the people are seeing the way the nations around them just kind of keeps, they, they seem like they're closing in, understanding that God is going to deliver them as well. Because we can't think that the people would have just been ignorant of Assyria and Babylon coming in and, and, and flexing their muscles around them. You know, they surely knew, just like we know in our modern days that we have, you know, we have as the United States, there's there's foreign influences that we have to be wary of. We know we might worry a little bit about what China's doing. We might a little bit worry a bit, a bit about the Russians still. 
And we just as common people, we don't even have to be in the government side of things to understand that there are things that are that are a potential threat. And so as the people are seeing this stuff and God is saying, don't worry, look, hey, look, you've seen me deliver in the past and trust that I'm going to deliver too. And then there's, you know, there's the spiritual connection to that too, where anybody who has been trying to, um, been trying to adhere to the stuff that God has, has laid out for them, uh, understanding that there's threats that are trying to pull them away from that as well. And God is there going to look, I'm here. I'm here. Just, just come back, just come back, focus on me. We'll, and, and don't worry, I'm going to take care of this. And yeah, so don't that. Oh, go, ahead. go ahead, Matt. I was going to say, don't don't worry and don't worry about the mortal man threats. You know, this is God we're talking about. But He says, you forget your Maker. Yeah. You know, this is God, and so don't forget who made you. Don't forget that this is the one who's taking care of you. What were you going to say, Eric? Let's say verse seven really spoke to me. Where God says, listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. And having God's law in their heart, mm-hmm. God's think instead of law, think principles. Yes. Um, because I, I really think that's what it really means. He says, fear not the reproach of man. It, right in that statement right there, the assumption that if we have God's law in our heart, we will be repro- reproached by man. It's not as yeah. if like, oh, if we were on God's side, everything's going to go great. Not so much. Nor be dismayed at their revilings. And I've had to think about my son's 12 right now. And um, I saw a survey pop up in YouTube. It said, should YouTube keep the thumbs down uh, icon on videos? And the vast majority of people say, yes, we should be able to express mm. our negative feelings towards someone else. Mm. And God is saying, and in the days of social media, it's like, how many likes do I get? How many? God is saying to me right here, he's saying, fear not the reproach or ratings of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. And I wonder if Isaiah was on uh, Twitter or YouTube, how many thumbs down would his message get? <laughs> A <laughs> lot. Right? Probably. Probably. The majority. And God is saying here, do not look to your fellow man for validation. You keep your eyes on me, because as this plays out in the long run, in verse eight, the moth will eat them up like a garment, like a worm, you know, eating wool. But my righteousness will be forever. He's saying, keep your eyes on me. Yeah, I, I, you know, I over the many years of my life, I have probably read the Bible through a number of times. But for some reason, that verse really stood out to me before. And I think it was because of the way, at least in my world, my little view of the world, you know, the world is sort of escalating and people are becoming more sharply divided and more feeling more free to be critical of people who don't agree with them. And it's it's like it's so easy to be reviled, you know, quote unquote, now that 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 verse really, really stood out to me. And I was like, "Mm, yeah, I see how that happens. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, and that's kind of what God is talking about here. He's like, don't, don't, don't worry about them. Focus on, yep. focus on me. Yep. Focus on God, and, and stop worrying about what people are saying. Stop worrying about what people are doing. And it, you know, in these in these cases of 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 the the context we're talking about, I mean, we're talking about actual physical harm that 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 yeah. that could happen. 
yep. but look look beyond that because this is bigger than that. And in, in 16, he says, I have put, this is God speaking, I think, I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand. And then for context, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth. It's like, well, if God has something for Isaiah to say, for his Messiah to say, for us to say, then we just have to say what needs to be said. I think say it prudently and with as much diplomacy as possible, but um, to say mm-hmm. it. So skipping back just a smidge, Isaiah has been prophesying the doom of of, uh, Judah. And then he like flashes forward in verse 11. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be on their heads and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. There's a song I had heard from probably back in the 80s that had this as lyrics. God is saying already, it's like, it's going to get bad. It's going to be rough. They're, they haven't even left for Babylon, right? They yeah. think they're in Zion. He's like, okay, so once you get kicked out and once you're in captivity, you're going to come back. And I think this is one of those prophecies where literally it's like you'll get to come back to Jerusalem. But I think also in a much to zoom way out includes us Gentiles. To say, hey, look, Zion's coming. There will be a time when you get to come into it. Think Revelation 21 and 22, when you'll get gladness and joy and sorrow and sadness and tears. That'll be gone. Mm -hmm. So the end of the chapter talks about God's fury being removed. It's interesting to think of this as God's fury, but wake up. Wake up. You, You have been drinking from this cup, right? Drunk, they've drank, drunk from this cup of what we're going to call God's fury, which is always interesting because God's fury, <laughs> you know, the, the 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 mental imagery that we get from some of the words sometimes, we tend to put it into like, oh, God is like so angry with me right now and he's going to spank me, you know, and, and but what God's fury usually is, is him putting his hands up in the air and going, OK, have it your way, have it your way. Uh, I don't like it, but have it your way. And uh, so, so you've 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 seen this. You've seen where this takes you. But I would I would say that God's fury goes well beyond acknowledging the stupidity of our choices. He sees everything that is done. He hears all of our thoughts. He knows mm-hmm. all of our feelings all of humanity's darker impulses. And I would say that his fury, rather than being at us as individuals, because as we know from Psalms, he understands that we are weak creatures. How does it, how does Psalm 106 say it? He knows we are dust. He remembers our frame. He knows we are dust. That's why we have mercy, right? Mm-hmm. I would say, though, that his fury towards the destructiveness of Satan and sin is 100% exactly fury. I don't think that that's an exasperated parent throwing up his hands at what his children have chosen to do. I would say that his hatred of sin is absolute. Yeah, no, yeah, that's fair. And, and, you know, I think we see this in Revelation. This was pointed out to me. I hadn't noticed it, but uh, John Eldridge mentioned this in one of his books. It's like, God made the lake of fire. It's a real thing. He made it for the beast and 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 the dragon and the false prophets. And so he didn't make it for you. 
Now, if you insist on choosing his side, that's where you end up. But that's not why he made it. He made it specifically to remove the origin of sin and the one. And I 100% agree with you, Karen, is that God is not kind of upset about that. He's really mm-hmm. upset about that. Now, is yeah. he sad and all those other things? Yes, I think so, too. But there is there is a an anger. But it's not toward us unless we choose that other side. And then I just, it's unavoidable, and this goes kind of helps us see in 52 as it transitions into 53, who God is. And I've really been thinking about this a lot lately. It's a flashback to Isaiah 33, uh, 33, 14, and 15. It says, a question and answer. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? This is God himself. It's just he is consuming fire. Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? That's the question. Answer, he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the oppressions, who shakes it. You know, don't, they don't take a bribe. They don't, they don't turn away from other things. God doesn't quit being who he is, who is a consuming fire. And if you have fuel in you, sin, that will be consumed in God's presence. And it's not because he doesn't like you. It's because if you have combustible stuff in you, you will combust. And God says, I want to remove it from you. I want to cleanse you from that so that you can dwell with me safely. Mm-hmm. So he's he's giving all this context of who God is. And then they don't really understand who it is. And then it transitions. I don't want to skip it. But in 52, basically, verse 13 is the beginning of Isaiah 53. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it 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 puts into context a different side of God that Matt, you talk about a lot is like, there's the old Testament smiting God, you know, that, that people think about, but in 52, 13 and 53 and for chapter 53, it gets into a, an Emmanuel. We're heading into Christmas season here uh, as we're recording anyways, mm-hmm. um, that we think of God as Emmanuel and God is going to point out to us like, this is how I roll which is a very different picture of God than people have kind of had in their heads. And it gets to what one of the, my favorite verses in Isaiah is verse 52, seven, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really emotional for me because, um, I taught in Micronesia, um, I'll date myself here. Back in the late 80s, uh, 1980s, not 1880s. I'm not that old. But uh, <laughs> there was a guy who was he he just showed up at our school. And it was every, even the administration were like, so uh, how did you get here? Like, what are you doing here? We didn't even have a job. We didn't advertise this. You just he just like got off the plane. He's like, I'm here. And I said, to do what? <laughs> and he said to teach the gospel. And he would just pick up his Bible and he wore sandals. He never wore shoes ever. And he would just walk out and talk to anyone about the gospel. Mm. And his feet were always super dirty and really calloused. And I can't help but think of him going and teaching people the good news. Mm-hmm. Teaching people what what Isaiah 53 gets into and 
he he died doing it. That's why mm. it's an emotional thing for me. Um, he he's buried out there on a little tiny island, and his family's never seen his grave. But he gave himself to share this beautiful news. Wow. Can't help but admire admire that and the some people's ability to just off the cuff be able to talk about it. It's a that was his purpose, man. I mean, like that, yeah. that was his mission. It was like if he showed up late, everybody knew it's like, yeah, he just met somebody and he's talking about the gospel. It's yeah. like that's just that's that's what he's doing. Food and class. He was a teacher, and it was like, well, if he showed up for class, it was because he, you know, that was a mission for him. But if he missed meals, if he missed an event, it was just, you just knew he was having a Bible study with somebody. Wow. That's that's what he was doing. He wasn't lost, you know. He, he just that was his purpose. It was his all-consuming purpose was to share this gospel and, um, yeah. Yeah, so let's get into what that is, the last part of 52 and 53, huh? Yeah, so 52, I mean, basically 52, the whole th- it's the whole thing has just been kind of building up, building up, building up towards where we get in 53. And we're going to read a lot of things from 53 that are going to sound very familiar to us. Yes. But it's <laughs> uh, the 52 is base, is a lot of stuff about my people sold themselves for nothing, but they're going to be redeemed. Um like you said, how beautiful is he who brings good news? You know, this is a, it's a buildup to, to good things are coming. Uh, we're, we're going to get past, past the ugly and we're going to get into the good things. People will see salvation and don't, you know, don't go back to sinning after being saved. This is a message that Jesus gave all the time. Go and sin no more. Right. Yeah. And, um, and. And uh, verse 12, I like verse 12 before we get into 53. Uh, the Lord will go before you and be your rear guard. So he's going to lead you from the front. He's also going to protect you from behind. Because, you know, if you're moving forward and keeping your focus on where you're going, you're not always paying attention to what's coming up behind you to to uh, surprise you. And God is saying, no, I'm going to be there, too. I'm going to be there, too. But, but yeah, so it's one of those weird chapter breaks and it makes me wonder why they broke the chapter where they did but verse 13 of 52 behold my servant behold my servant um the concept of a servant here it fascinates me in ways that i don't know that i can articulate and i'm hoping you guys can do a better job of it than me (laughs) um because he talks about this servant, but he's going to be exalted. He's going to use words like, or at least New King James, extolled. He's going to be very high. Well, who thinks of a servant as being exalted? Who thinks of a servant as being very high and on being spoken of uh, uh, with with passion and uh, being put into a place of honor? You know, you don't think. If of we that. thought about them, if we, if we thought about servants here on earth in terms of what they did the service they rendered the mm-hmm. ease that they provided rather than their lowly status of being ordered around we would value them a lot differently mm-hmm. yeah well the whole thing's a paradox and that's why it's so difficult to even yeah. now for me to understand is that the creator one with god i mean this is john one um, chapter one of the, the the Gospel of John says that this was this was God this was 
God, this Jesus was with God from the beginning and was the creator of all these things. And he was light and he walked among men and he's Emmanuel and he made himself a servant. One of the very last things Jesus did was to wash his disciples feet as a servant. It's just it's just the, the, the paradox of, of like is about as high as you can possibly go and then as low as you can possibly go is that's what that's kind of at the core of my like wow that's god it's it's a i i do not have my head around that i believe it i believe it's true but i don't have oh i understand how that works because i don't <laughs> yeah the idea of god as our servant but yet he's still the one that we worship and and uh it, it requires a lot of contemplation but even like you said you can't wrap your head around it but but i think that nowadays and and i and i can't speak to previous generations much less by bible times but i would say that at least in our modern world you know the conveniences that make our life go round nicely we we have gotten to the point where, where we're entitled to them like we mm -hmm. like everyone has that i need that right and yeah. so I think that one of the beautiful things that the gospel does is it strips away the things that we don't need and says flat out, you don't need them. <laughs> you have completely mixed up your priorities. What you need is this thing over here that is invisible and feels unnecessary to your modern mind. Yeah. And and to me, that's one of the, the biggest values that I get out of reading the Bible. It is It is a continual reset of my compass. Yeah, you know, ta talking about those um, those things that we kind of depend on, and, and for other people to provide, and and then Eric, you were talking about Jesus washing his disciples' feet. We all have taken part in in foot washing services where you will wash somebody's feet and have your feet washed, and having that done, you know, I mean, putting yourself in that position, we've done it enough times that it almost feels commonplace for us to do it. But if you've never done it before, it feels very, very strange to get down on your knees and wash somebody's feet. But when you have your feet washed, it is one of the most refreshing feelings in the world. And you're like, I wish I could have this every day. I wish somebody could just do this for me all the time. And for those and, who listening who don't know what that looks like, they're like, what? It's a service that's done typically before the communion, which which we celebrate not every week. Some do, you know, in, in uh, some belief systems. But you'll go down to a different place within the church. Maybe it's a fellowship hall or something like that. And they're little bowls. Okay. They're they're kind of like little basins, maybe a foot across, and there's a half inch of water in it. And one person will sit down on a little folding chair, another person kneels in front of them, and one person takes off their shoes and socks and sets their foot in the bowl. And the other person with their hands takes the water up and kind of it's a symbolic thing, but it's very humbling. You, you you're kneeling in front of this other person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it is, it's, it's an unavoidable reminder of this servant picture, which is why Jesus said, I want you to do this. And it puts this into context, like, okay, this is part of the whole picture. And like what Matt said, it's like, if you've never had this done, it's a very, I found myself like Peter, like, uh, no, you no, you're not going to do that. <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. It's a very natural reaction to, to feel kind of repulsed almost by the concept of it. There's an intimacy to it. There's an intimacy and there's a, I'm kneeling in front of this other person and 
or, is, or this other person is kneeling in front of me. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it is intentionally uncomfortable. And, and yet we're called to it. And so these things come back as we're talking about servants, because servants like literally did this as guests would come over. You know, nowadays we say, oh, hang your coat in the closet there. You know, back then it'd be like, oh, hey, servant, hey, wash their feet. Because, I mean, they got sandals, they got dusty, icky feet, you know, and maybe like Matt says a bit hot and nasty. And he goes, wash your feet. Ah, that'll feel really good. Well, a servant to wash somebody's dusty, smelly feet is a real thing. And so the context of a servant doing these things um, and waiting on other people and the, all of the, you know, the last part, starting with in, in 5213 through 53, is a picture of the the servant, the which we look at as the Messiah, is in fact a very different picture than what most of the Jews of Jesus' day had in mind. The disciples struggled with this a lot. Yeah, you just don't think of somebody that you look up to being the one that would do these things for you. It's uh, it it's it boy, it is such a paradigm shift. And if you if you take it out a level, like if we think about if we think about Jesus becoming our servant, the servant to the world, it's it's uncomfortable because it's not deserved and we know it, right? Mm -hmm. And then we're called to show God's character to the world. We're supposed to be the city on the hill, the salt of the earth all of those things, we're supposed to now turn around and show everyone what God's love looks like. Guess what that means for us, right? Now it's our turn. So Jesus gets down in, on his knees in front of us and he washes his feet and he gives his life for us and he does these things. And we in turn are supposed to show that, mm -hmm. that attitude to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. whether they want to see it or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's like, hey, prosperity gospel, sign me up. <laughs> Be a servant? Uh, that's awkward. Um, yeah. But the whole thing, Isaiah, in, in 14, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Mm -hmm. It's, And yet he he's, you know, so he shall sprinkle or surprise. It says many nations for that which has not been told them they will see and that which they have not heard they will understand and i think refers to romans 15 21 to the, basically the salvation of people who haven't gotten the gospel in the traditional way is that somehow jesus has a way to do this and his form the way he showed up i think this is something we should really pay attention to, especially for people who feel like they've got a perfect lock on eschatology, how things are going to unfold in the future. Mm. <laughs> it's this Jesus shows up in a surprising way every time he shows up. Every He gives clues, okay? Mm -hmm. And if we're looking for him with his heart, because there was the, the Simeon and Anna who showed up as Jesus was born and being blessed in the, um, in the temple at his dedication, they saw it coming. Right. They didn't know exactly how, but they knew something and the Holy Spirit spoke to them. But to the rest of us, of whatever persuasion you happen to be, if you feel like you've got a perfect lock on how last day events are going to unfold, I would propose to you it has never <laughs> unfolded exactly as everyone in the past was sure of it. 
And so this servant who shows up was a very surprising thing. His appearance was so marred. I think they expected somebody like Saul. Remember, we've studied this in our past. Saul was chosen as king. Oh, he's tall. He's good looking. He comes from a nice family. He'll be amazing. He looked great on the outside. He He was not great all the way through and through on the inside. His life was just a long slope downward and then just crashed and burned. Yeah. But this, all of the, the, the things we don't expect, Jesus wouldn't have had, you know, 15 million Instagram followers going, oh, he's so good looking. Mm. Oh, he always says the quippiest, most popular things. That's not what Isaiah 53 projects. Yeah, it comes right out and says that uh, he has no beauty that we should desire him. Uh, mm. There's... There's nothing remarkable about his physical appearance. Uh, you know, we, these days we we get some um, we get some archaeological work done on people of the time, and they'll say, "Oh, this is probably what Jesus looked like." And if you look at that, and they you know they show you a picture of an average guy of the time, you're like, "Yeah, that's not a particularly handsome man." You know, he doesn't have a perfectly kept beard and the hair swept back and, you know, the, the picture we get of Jesus. And and uh, and then sometimes the, the non-believers would be like, oh, look, look, see, he doesn't look anything like you thought he looked. And, and then we're going, um, yeah, did you read Isaiah 53? Because he's, we, you know, we didn't know what to expect. And that's the point. I, I think that it is another example of God's cleverness in that. Jesus came to earth and fulfilled a one-of-a-kind ministry without any of the trappings that the world encourages, right? right yeah. So Eric, Eric talks a lot about different the two different kingdoms. You've got the kingdom of God, and it acts like this and looks like this and feels like this. You've got the kingdom of the earth, which is currently, right? you know, as Jesus said, Satan is the prince of this world. And... Those are two different kingdoms with different sets of goals and different methods of implementing those goals. And I think my impression from reading through the gospel and sort of absorbing it slowly over the years has been that when Jesus was sent to fulfill his mission, every human advantage from human perspective was taken from him. He didn't have socioeconomic advantage. He didn't have racial advantage. He didn't have political advantage, right? He didn't have natural beauty advantage. He had all of these things against him. And that was, and, and that to me sort of embodies right there in our savior, sort of the meat of that text that says in your weakness, I am made strong. Right. In our weakness, his strength becomes evident. And that was true of Jesus as well. I don't know. That's kind of my impression. hundred percent. And it's it's that's Isaiah 53. You know, I, if, if our listeners haven't read it, please sit down and read it. It is. Oh, yeah. It's an amazing picture of. God's love for us, you know, and for us to be able to say. I, Karen get, got to that point. Uh, you know, for the ability for us to say, well, God wouldn't understand, you know, where we are. It's like, actually, he does through the incarnation of Jesus, you know, 53 verse 3, he was despised and rejected or forsaken by men, a man of sorrows uh, or pains, it says, and acquainted with grief 
or, or sickness, uh, as the footnote says, as one from whom men hide their faces. It's like, yeah, uh, that guy's got problems. Kind of like, you know, where you're at a stoplight and there's somebody standing at the corner with a sign and they're like, oh, man, that, that dude looks pathetic. I'm just going to pretend like I don't see them. He's saying that's kind of where Jesus was at some point. Like, there's nothing going to be so amazing. We're going to be like, oh, wow, that person's beautiful. It's like, no. He was very familiar with the things that we are, the, the pain. Karen went through some of those. But he says here at the end of verse 3, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Um, and this is why in, in Hebrews it says, we have a high priest who's standing before the, the, the altar of God in heaven, who is acquainted with our sorrows. He mm-hmm. can, he understands what it's like in so many ways. Yeah, and this isn't a vision that we think of as someone coming to save us. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is a guy you look like we, we look at and 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 go ew. You know, the in a lot of ways. Yeah, um, in, in the outward ways that we're used to judging people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in verse fourteen, he he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken. Mm-hmm. We look, you know, he's taken on he's taken our garbage, and then we look at him and go, look at all the crap he's carrying around. What's mm-hmm. wrong with him? What's, mm-hmm. you know, uh, oh man, it is just such a, it's such a different way of, of, of thinking of, uh, of a savior, of a God. But and, it shows, uh, but it points everything inward and upward, yeah, right? Yeah it, yeah. it doesn't, you're not showcasing physical beauty because that can be distracting. You're showcasing beauty of character, right? Mm-hmm. You're showing what God's look, what God's love and character looks like in action in a human life. And everything points through to salvation. Yes. Yeah. And his, his purpose, his mission is pretty well outlined in four and five. That's basically the gospel in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And I'm putting my emphasis in on this. Yet we esteemed him as stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Oh, uh, there's a lot to. There's just so much to take in there. You know, he's he he he's he is experiencing the stuff that we ought to be. I don't know. It's there's so much here. It's like even when I'm looking at my notes, I'm looking at my notes, and really all I did was wrote down the texts, you know. Because um, how do you how do you articulate this? How do you how do you understand that that the God of the universe is taking on um, the consequences of our actions? Mm-hmm. The the understanding that. You know, the cause and effect. And he is stepping in and he's taking that. And then we look at him as if there's something wrong with him. Um, and then by his stripes, I mean, that's talking about, you know, we're talking about punishment. But mm-hmm. by his his being punished, if that's the word you want to use, and that's the that's the imagery we're given. When he takes it on, we are healed we we are made better by his his what his afflictions yeah yeah second corinthians 5 21 says this 
for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, mm-hmm. so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So it's 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 not just that Jesus carried the sin or that he, you know, kind of like kept it in a backpack and took it to God. He became, it says right here, I'm not saying this, this is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin. Mm. So that we might become the righteousness of God. And this is why, because we, I, I just referred to this here earlier in Isaiah 33, who can be in the presence of God? Well, the righteous can. Well, if Jesus is, becomes sin on the cross, he is separated from God, which is why, not surprisingly, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because sin can't be in the presence of God. And at that time, from Gethsemane uh, on, he becomes, he carries our sin, he becomes our sin. And at that point, in that moment, was separated from God so that, here in Isaiah, we get what he should have, and he gets what we should have had. Yeah. If you think back, the whole sacrificial system pointed forward to this. Yep. And if you if you think about what somebody had to do, like they committed the sin, right? So they have the sin. They are the sinner. So they choose an innocent lamb, a perfect innocent lamb, it has no blame and no fault. They take that to the priest and they confess their sin over the lamb. They transfer, they do the symbolic things. This isn't literal, this isn't witchcraft. They do this symbolic thing where they put their sin onto the lamb and the lamb is killed in their place, even though it's small and perfect and never did that thing. Right? Mm-hmm. So that lamb becomes sin for them and pays the price, right? And all of those lambs through history were pointing forward to that text that Eric just read. He became sin yeah. for us in our stead. Yeah, and I'm, you know, I've tried to put myself into uh, into the position of a person back then making that sacrifice. And, and you think about what it would mean to kneel down and slit the throat of this animal and let its blood run out if if you put this into that context of understanding okay if they were able to think i'm putting all the bad stuff into me into this and i'm going to kill it i'm going to get rid of it you know i've in the past sometimes i thought oh man it would be hard to kill that lamb but then if you can think about how transferring your hatred for this bad stuff that you're trying to get out of you to a lamb how hard, you know, how hard is it then? I don't, I, I'm kind of going the wrong way on this, I think. It would be, maybe you would feel a little wrath towards that. You know, maybe you would feel a little more willingness to kill the thing. Um, and maybe, and maybe that is what, maybe that's a perspective we're supposed to take on, on this concept of Jesus as that sacrifice and the wrath that he's taking from God. I don't know. I don't know. Well, there are, there are, there is one country here on earth. There may be more. I only know for sure of one that 
allows their wealthy to pay someone else to fill their jail sentence. If mm. they com- if the wealthy person commits a crime, if a person commits a crime and they're convicted, they can pay someone else to take their sentence. Now, if you look at that through the American legal system, that's crooked. Mm-hmm. That's crooked. But in that country, that's okay. I find it repulsive. If I think about the idea, and here's a classic example, one of the grown sons of local politician a few years ago in this other country was driving recklessly in a Saturday night crowd, and he he ran into the crowd with his car and he killed somebody, right? So he doesn't try to run away. Everybody sees him. He's there with his friends. He does not care. He did not care. He stopped his car. He hopped up on the hood of it and he sat there and smoked and drank and laughed with his friends while he waited for the police to come because he knew that even though he had done this thing, he wouldn't have to pay the price. Mm. See, that's what I'm getting at. That's repulsive to me. Everything in me that wants justice to occur is repulsed by that. That very idea that somebody else who didn't commit the crime would fill the sentence. And yet that is what happens for me to God every time I choose sin. Mm-hmm. If, if we if we look at that, yeah, I think to Karen's point, when we choose it, when we're like, don't care, <clears throat> somebody else will pick up the tab. That I think is not God's ideal for us. Is that if we if we see God, and every time it's really interesting. Almost every time law is mentioned and keeping God's law, grace shows up first, and then law following or obeying the principles of God follow follows after that. So it's grace first, love, and then we're like, oh, yeah, I would not want to hurt you. I would not want you to pay the price for me. That's right. kind of how this goes. Um, in case we're – some people may go like, I don't know, this Isaiah 53 thing, is that really what – pointing towards Jesus? I mean, there's so many things that are kind of specific prophecies in there, um, being pierced and by his stripes. You know, there's the crucifixion, there's the whipping, and there's all these other things. But to the to the idea of who, what this whole salvation story was about, First um, Peter two twenty two starts here. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin, to Karen's point here about, no, we want to be dead with sin. We don't want to be okay with it. Mm-hmm. And to live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It's kind of hard to read that in Peter and then look at Isaiah 53 and say, yeah, that doesn't apply to them. To, to Jesus, it's like, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, pretty much. They were quoting what's happening here in in Isaiah as, and it's unavoidable. I'm I'm not sure which one of you two mentioned it, but this was this is the fulfillment. The Messiah is the fulfillment of the entire sacrificial system. Is is putting our sins on an innocent 
something else, lambs for a long time, then becoming the person of Jesus, the son of God, to pay those, to pay that price for us. And if we, I'll say it, if we care, if we know who he is, that should break our hearts. Mm -hmm. We we won't take the attitude of we'll just, you know, sit on the hood of our car and smoke while we're waiting for the payment to be made. We will not be okay with what caused that pain. We will not want to cause that pain again. We will be grateful for the price that is paid for us because of this. And it will change out. There won't be cheap grace. I guess maybe that's a, a way to put that is it? we will look at the price that sin costs. And we will say, no, thank you to sin. Mm-hmm. Hey, you want a little bit of sin? Like, actually, no, that the price for that sin is way too high. I do not want to put that price onto Jesus on the cross. I don't want it. I reject it. And it puts a totally different spin on how we follow God's principles and how we follow his law and how we follow. It's not then it becomes not about us. See, we focus like, well, I don't want to pay the price. Well, I don't want to have to deal with this. I don't want to have to keep the law. Well, if we look at it through what this does and how this gets paid and whose debt this really was, in my opinion, it should change the way we think about this entirely. Instead of about it, me, 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 I shouldn't have to, I get grace, I get the, like, well, what was the cost of that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the gratitude, you know, that's, you know, Karen, you're talking about how repulsive that was of the guy to 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 run into the crowd and then just laugh it off. Uh, I mean, my gosh, how, how ungrateful, how ungrateful. Callous. And callous. I mean, one that he did it in the first place, but then knowing that somebody could step in for him and take that, and he's just like, eh, yeah, big deal. You know, I, I, and I, because that, because that was an expectation in his country, and because of mm-hmm. his political status and wealth status, he already knew. He knew he had done it in front of hundreds of people, thousands of people. He would be found guilty. He would also not have to pay the price. Yeah, you know, yeah. and and it just it changes things like that, you know, to me are such an embodiment of the carelessness that we humans get caught up in. And then you get, you know, chapters in the Bible, like Isaiah 53, that calls your attention back like, no, this this is actually major. This yeah. changes everything. Yeah. And we can't take grace flippantly like that. Yeah, I, I honestly, like I don't know. Yeah. yeah, like Paul know. in Romans, shall we keep sinning then that grace may abound? Heaven forbid. Right. right. And and the idea that we can just say, um, just say, ah, I just, Jesus will pay the price. I'm not worried about it. I just, I always just like throw that in as a Hail Mary at the very end. Jesus yeah. addresses this in Matthew 7. We've mentioned it before, Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. Um, is that there's there's to be a, a resonance of character, a personal knowing of Jesus in Matthew 7, uh, 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Is that there's to be a resonance of, of us knowing who God is and having our hearts aligned with him more than just saying, you know, yeah, I got the pass. Yeah. You, Matt, posted something recently on social media about um on the anniversary of martin luther doing Mm -hmm. his thing you know Uh posting his 95 
sort of objections to the current state of the church, where the church itself had gotten caught up in this sort of mercenary approach to sin and like in, you know, where you could go and pay for sins in advance. Yeah. And it was like, wait, what? You know, like, where's the sincerity? Where's the where's the maturity? Where's the actual effort going on here? Anyway, I just I think this chapter is really beautiful. Yes. And it's it's such it's such a call to look past what we value on a day to day basis and to the foundation of God's kingdom instead of the kingdom that we live in every day to day, every day and see sort of functioning around us. It's such a it's such a huge, like eye opening thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, you could go verse by verse through this thing and and take it apart. And like Eric was saying before we even started uh, recording that Isaiah 53 could be a whole hour long plus uh, episode all by itself. But if this doesn't make us stop and think about what it's caught, co- what it has cost, what our salvation costs, I don't even know if we, you know, without really stopping and thinking, I don't know if we even know what it means, our salvation means. But just the cost and the way that Jesus was willing to step in voluntarily, you know, who's paying Jesus to do this? You know, you got some prince who runs into a into a crowd with a car and he can pay somebody. Well, who's paying Jesus to do this? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't have anything to pay him with. You guys don't have anything to pay him with. And he's stepping in and doing this of his own accord. And, you know, the words they're talking about how we we. Uh, we esteem him stricken. You know, we look, we've, mankind has looked at him like there was something wrong with him. Verse seven talks about how he's oppressed and afflicted, but he didn't open his mouth. He, he just took it. He just took it. And, you know, when you read, you read about the story of the cross, mm-hmm. you don't hear about him complaining other than, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But at that point, you know, we're talking about the we're talking about Jesus who has spent eternity at the side of God and then being separated in a way that we'll never understand. You know, but even that, you know, he's not complaining about the sacrifice that he's making. He's not complaining about serving us in this way. He's just he's taking it, you know, and uh, I can barely I can barely fathom it. Yeah. yeah. In the book of John, there's a ch- there's a whole chapter. So, OK, so it's when when he's in Gethsemane. Right. So we know that he was struggling in Gethsemane, knowing what was coming. He was struggling. He looked to his companions for human companionship and acceptance and, and just the comfort of somebody to keep him company. Mm-hmm. Even though he knew they didn't really understand his mission yet, he still wanted their company. He just wanted his friends near him. But he was also reaching out to his father and he was saying, like, is there any other way? Right. Yeah. But one of the interesting things about the passage in John is that he prays. He basically prays. And when you when you think about when you think about the crucifixion in light of everything we're discussing today, this chapter, this whole prayer of um, that Jesus said becomes, I think, a little more clear, at least to me, it does. Where at one point he basically says, I pray for my disciples. And I pray for all of the generations that are going to follow them, right? And he's basically asking God to bless and protect and 
save all of the generations that will come to that believe in him now and will come to believe in him in the future. And like he's in essence, he's asking for his sacrifice to be enough. Mm-hmm. Like yep. make this be enough. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say, you know, to our, and that, our listeners. That, and that oh. prayer comes all the way through us. That prayer comes all the way through us, which I think is just gorgeous. Yeah. What were you going to say there, Eric? See, I, I would recommend picking up the story. The Gospel of John's a great one with the Last Supper and read all the way through the trial and crucifixion and Gethsemane, as Karen has mentioned, and, and read Isaiah 53. Read them, read them mm-hmm. together, and they it's powerful. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. It's uh, I don't know a lot there, and like you said, especially coming into Christmas, I don't I don't know how close to Christmas this will will land as people uh, hear it, but hopefully that it'll make them reflect on um what that's all about. This is a live issue every day in the human experience. I don't. I mean, I, I understand what you're saying about you know the holidays sort of being. You know, we kind of pause to think about that. But honestly, anybody who has misstepped at any time, anyone who has either stepped into the heart of a servant or avoided having the heart of a servant or under or done anything that requires a sacrifice on their behalf or hesitated, hesitated in their heart to accept God's grace, like all of those things. Those are day to day concerns. Day to day. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, it's a, all this stuff, it's so deep. It would take a lot, well, I think it'll take more than a lifetime. It's going to take an eternity for us to study this, and mm-hmm. I don't know if we'll ever fully grasp it. I, you know, I look out, I look out at the stars at night, and I think about how small and insignificant I am, and thinking that God, God looks down on me, and deems me worth saving. You know, I look down at an anthill and I can, well, I got kind of a soft heart. I don't like to squash them if I can help it. But, you know, squash an ant, it's insignificant. There's more. It's not a big deal. You know, but God looks down at me and says, I want to save him. I want to, I want, I want to serve him. I want him to be with me. Uh, and it's it's more than I can really comprehend. I can't I can't get it. And I, and I think that sort of disbelief or that that sort of awe will only ratchet up when we actually see heaven, when we actually mm. experience perfection. We we say all of that from our current fallen position, where we just can't seem to get things right, and our attention span lasts like ten seconds, and then we're on to the next thing. Right? Yeah. What is that going to feel like when we actually see? what he gave up and how far off we were. You know what I mean? Like that's like, that's next level to me. Like I can't even get my brain around that. Nope. Nope. It's, uh, it's more than I can. It's more than I can put into an hour and a half of discussion, even with you guys. (laughs) uh, It's, uh, it is, it's so deep and so much to contemplate. And if we just spend, if we just spend time every day, just thinking about that, how much different would our lives be? You know, thinking of God as our servant, thinking of uh, trying, trying, trying to grasp that for ourselves and being servants ourselves. How much would we change the world if we just could, uh, could just try to live into that some every day? It would, uh, I think it would be astounding. 
It would be amazing. But we're humans and we're stupid and we'll screw it up every time. So thank thank God that uh, thank God that we have this. I don't know. I would say, are there any last thoughts? But we could probably be we could probably go for another two hours if we try to go into last <laughs> thoughts here. So um, I think maybe we will just uh, end this right here. And I definitely like Eric said, read Isaiah 53 and really try to just just uh, absorb it. And, and let it let it work in you. We'll never get it all at once, but um, but give it at least give it a shot to uh, to try try to let some of that sink soak in. So next week, I think we will get into Isaiah chapters fifty four through fifty eight. We're going to be in Isaiah for another two or three weeks, I think, and then we'll say goodbye to Isaiah. But next week it'll be chapters fifty four through fifty eight. So you could read ahead on that while you're waiting for us. Remember, you can reach out to us at attbpodcast at theadventure.org. You can find us on Facebook. You can make sure, to, please uh, make sure to uh, let your friends and family and neighbors know about the podcast so that we can uh, reach them. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so we reach you in your feed each and every week. And we look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.